And there we sit down in utter dejection, alone in our wretchedness, for there is none to comfort us while we are in such a state. Death is now desired that an end may be put to our misery. If we try to pray, it is but the murmurings of our hearts which find expression. My will and not thine be done being the substance thereof. And what was the Lord's response? Did he turn with disgust from such a sight and leave his erring servant to reap what he had sown and suffer the full and final deserts of his unbelief? Ah, shall the good shepherd refuse to take care of one of his strayed sheep lying helpless by the wayside? Shall the great physician refuse assistance to one of his patients just when he needs him most? Blessed be his name. The Lord is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Psalm 103.13 Thus it was here. The Lord evidenced his pity for his overwrought and disconsolate servant in a most gracious manner. For the next thing that we read of is that he slept under the juniper tree. Verse 5 But the force of that is apt to be lost upon us in this God-dishonoring day, when there are few left who realize that he giveth his beloved sleep. Psalm 127.2 It was something better than nature taking its course. It was the Lord refreshing the weary prophet. How often is it now lost sight of that the Lord cares for the bodies of his saints as well as for their souls. This is more or less recognized and owned by believers in the matter of food and clothing, health and strength, but it is widely ignored by many concerning the point we are here treating of. Sleep is as imperative for our physical well-being as is food and drink, and the one is as much the gift of our Heavenly Father as is the other. We cannot put ourselves to sleep by any effort of will, as those who suffer with insomnia quickly discover. Nor does exercise and manual labor of itself ensure sleep. Have you ever lain down almost exhausted and then found you were too tired to sleep? Sleep is a divine gift, but the nightly recurrence of it blinds us to the fact. When it so pleases him, God withholds sleep, and then we have to say with the psalmist, Thou holdest mine eyes waking. 77.4 but that is the exception rather than the rule, and deeply thankful should we be that it is so. Day by day the Lord feeds us, and night by night he giveth his beloved sleep. Thus in this little detail of Elijah sleeping under the juniper tree, which we are likely to pass over lightly, we should perceive the gracious hand of God ministering in tenderness to the needs of one who was dear unto him. Yes, the Lord pitieth them that fear him, and why? For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. Psalm 103.14 He is mindful of our frailty and tempers his winds accordingly. He is aware when our energies are spent and graciously renews our strength. It was not God's design that his servant should die of exhaustion in the wilderness after his long, long flight from Jezreel. So he mercifully refreshes his body with sleep and thus compassionately does he deal with us. Alas, how little are we affected by the Lord's goodness and grace unto us. The unfailing recurrence of his mercies, both temporally and spiritually, inclines us to take them as a matter of course. So dull of understanding are we, so cold our hearts Godward, it is to be feared that most of the time we fail to realize whose loving hand it is which is ministering to us. Is not this the very reason why we do not begin really to value our health 
until it is taken from us, and not until we spend night after night tossing upon a bed of pain do we perceive the worth of regular sleep with which we were formerly favored. And such vile creatures are we that when illness and insomnia come upon us, instead of improving the same by repenting of our former ingratitude and humbly confessing the same to God, we murmur and complain at the hardness of our present lot and wonder what we have done to deserve such treatment. Oh, let those of us who are still blessed with good health and regular sleep fail not daily to return thanks for such privileges and earnestly seek grace to use the strength from them to the glory of God. Chapter 25 Refreshed There hath no temptation, trial, whether in the form of seduction or afflictions, solicitations to sin or hardships, taken you but such as is common to man. 1 Corinthians 10.13 There hath no trial come upon you but such as human nature is liable unto and has often been subject to. You have not been called upon to experience any superhuman or unprecedented temptation. But how generally is this fact lost sight of when the dark clouds of adversity come our way? Then we are inclined to think, none was ever so severely tried as I am. It is well at such a moment to remind ourselves of this truth and ponder the records of those who have gone before us. Is it excruciating suffering of body which causes you to suppose your anguish is beyond that of any other? Then recall the case of Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. Is it bereavement, the unexpected snatching away of loved ones? Then remember also that Job lost all his sons and daughters in a single day. Is it the succession of hardships and persecutions encountered in the Lord's service? Then read 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24-27, through 27, and note the multiplied and painful experiences through which the chief of the apostles was called upon to pass. But perhaps that which most overwhelms some reader is the shame he feels over his breakdown under trials. He knows that others have been tried as severely as he has, yea, much more severely, yet they bore them with courage and composure, whereas he has been crushed by them. Instead of drawing comfort from the divine promises, he has given way to a spirit of despair. Instead of bearing the rod meekly and patiently, he has rebelled and murmured. Instead of plodding along the path of duty, he has deserted it. Was there ever such a sorry failure as I am? Is now his lament. Rightly should we be humbled and mourn over such failures to quit ourselves like men. 1 Corinthians 16.13 Contritely should we confess such sins unto God. Yet we must not imagine that all is now lost. Even this experience is not unparalleled in the lives of others. Though Job cursed not God, yet he did the day of his birth. So too did Jeremiah. 2014. Elijah deserted his post of duty, lay down under the juniper tree and prayed for death. What a mirror is scripture in which we may see ourselves. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Yes, God is faithful, even if we are faithless. He is true to his covenant engagements. And though he visits our iniquities with stripes, yet his loving kindness will he never utterly take from one of his own. Psalm 89, verses 32 and 33 
It is in the hour of trial, just when the clouds are blackest and the spirit of dejection has seized us, that God's faithfulness appears most conspicuously. He knows our frame and will not suffer us to be unduly tried, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. That is to say, he will either lighten the burden or give increased strength to bear it, so that we shall not be utterly overwhelmed by it. God is faithful. Not that he is engaged to secure us if we deliberately plunge into temptations. No, but rather, if we seek to resist temptation, if we call upon him in the day of trouble, if we plead his promises and count upon him to undertake for us, he most certainly will not fail us. Thus, though on the one hand we must not presume and be reckless, on the other hand we should not despair and give up the fight. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning." How strikingly and how blessedly was 1 Corinthians 10.13 illustrated and exemplified in the case of Elijah. It was a sore temptation or trial, when after all his fidelity in the Lord's service his life should be threatened by the wicked Jezebel, and when all his efforts to bring back Israel to the worship of the true God seemed to be entirely in vain. It was more than he could bear. He was weary of such a one-sided and losing fight and he prayed to be removed from the arena. But God was faithful, and with the sore temptation also made a way to escape, that he might be able to bear it. In Elijah's experience, as is so often the case with us, God did not remove the burden, but he gave fresh supplies of grace so that the prophet could bear it. He neither took away Jezebel, nor wrought a mighty work of grace in the hearts of Israel, but he renewed the strength of his overwrought servant. Though Elijah had fled from his post of duty, the Lord did not now desert the prophet in his hour of need. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13 Oh, what a God is ours! No mere fair-weather friend is the one who shed his blood to redeem us, but a brother born for adversity. Proverbs 17.17 He has solemnly sworn, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, And therefore may we triumphantly declare, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 As we pointed out in the last chapter, the first thing which the Lord did in renewing the strength of Elijah was to give his beloved sleep, thereby refreshing his weary and travel-worn body. How inadequately do we value this divine blessing, not only for the rest it brings to our physical frames, but for the relief it affords to a worried mind. What a mercy it is for many harassed souls that they are not awake the full 24 hours. Those who are healthy and ambitious may begrudge the hours spent in slumber as so much necessary waste of time. But others who are racked with pain or who are distressed must regard a few hours of unconsciousness each night as a great boon. None of us are as grateful as we should be for this constantly reoccurring privilege nor is hearty in returning thanks unto its bestower. That this is one of the Creator's gifts unto us is seen from the very first occurrence of the word in Scripture, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, Genesis 2.21. And as he lay and slept under the juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him, 1 Kings 19.5. Here was the second proof of the Lord's tender care for his servant, and an inexpressibly blessed one it was. Each separate word calls for devout attention. Behold, a note of wonderment to stimulate our interest and stir us to reverent amazement. 
Behold what? Some token of the Lord's displeasure, as we might well expect, a drenching rain, for example, to add to the prophet's discomfort? No, far otherwise. Behold, a grand demonstration of the truth. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 These verses are often quoted, yet few of the Lord's people are familiar with the words which immediately precede them and of which they are an amplification. Let us return to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon us, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Thus it is not the loftiness of his wisdom, but the infinitude of his mercy, which is there in view. Behold then! This time mark gives additional emphasis to the amazing phenomenon which is here spread before our eyes. It was not on the summit of Carmel, but here in the wilderness that Elijah received this touching proof of his master's care. It was not immediately after his conflict with the prophets of Baal, but following upon his flight from Jezreel that he received this distinguishing favor. It was not while he was engaged in importunate prayer, begging God to supply his need, but when he had petulantly asked that his life should be taken from him, that provision was now made to preserve it. How often God is better to us than our fears. We look for judgment and behold mercy. Has there not been just such a then in our lives? Certainly there has been, more than once in the writer's experience, and we doubt not in each of our Christian readers. Well then, may we unite together in acknowledging He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103.10 Rather has He dealt with us after His covenant faithfulness, and according to His knowledge passing love. Behold then, an angel touched him. It was not a fellow traveler whose steps God now directed toward the juniper tree and whose heart he moved to have compassion unto the exhausted one who lay beneath it. That had been a signal mercy. But here we gaze upon something far more amazing. God dispatched one of those celestial creatures who surrounded his throne on high to comfort the dejected prophet and supply his wants. Verily, this was not after the manner of men, But blessed be his name, it was after the manner of him who is the God of all grace. 1 Peter 5.10 And grace, my reader, takes no account of our worthiness or unworthiness, of our deservedness or ill-deservedness. No, grace is free and sovereign, and looks not outside itself for the motive of its exercise. Man often deals harshly with his fellows, ignoring their frailty and forgetting that he is liable to fall by the wayside as they are and therefore he frequently acts hurriedly, inconsistently, and unkindly towards them. But not so did God. He ever deals patiently with his erring children, and shows the deepest pity and tenderness. Behold then, an angel touched him, gently rousing him from his sleep, that he might see and partake of the refreshment which had been provided for him. How this reminds us of that word, are they not all, the holy angels, ministering spirits, Sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Hebrews 1.14 This is something about which we hear little in this materialistic and skeptical age, but concerning which the scriptures reveal much for our comfort. It was an angel who came and delivered Lot from Sodom, ere that city was destroyed by fire and brimstone. 
Genesis 19:15 and 16. It was an angel which shut the lion's mouths when Daniel was cast into their den. 6, verse 22. It was angels who conveyed the soul of the beggar into Abraham's bosom. Luke 16:22. It was an angel which visited Peter in the prison, smote the chains from his hands, caused the iron gate of the city to open of his own accord. Acts 12, verses 7 and 10. And thus delivered him from his enemies. It was an angel who assured Paul that none on the ship should perish. Acts 27:23. Nor do we believe for a moment that the ministry of angels is a thing of the past, though they no longer manifest themselves in visible form as in Old Testament times. Hebrews 1:14 precludes such an idea. Then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. Verses 5 and 6. Here was the third provision which the Lord so graciously made for the refreshment of his exhausted servant. Once more we note the thought-provoking, Behold. And well may we ponder this sight and be moved to wonderment at it. Wonderment at the amazing grace of Elijah's God and our God. Twice before the Lord provided sustenance for the prophet in a miraculous manner, by the ravens at the brook Cherith, by the widow woman at Zarephath. But here none less than an angel ministered to him. Behold the constancy of God's love, which all Christians profess to believe in, but few seem to realize in moments of depression and darkness. As another has said, it is not difficult to believe that God loves us when we go with the multitude to the house of God with joy and praise and stand in the sunlit circle. But it is hard for us to believe that he feels as much love for us when, exiled by our sin to the land of Jordan and of the Hermonites, our soul is cast down within us and deep calls to deep and his waves and billows surge around. It is not difficult to believe that God loves us when, like Elijah at Cherith and Carmel, we do his commandments hearkening unto the voice of his word. But it is not so easy when, like Elijah in the desert, we lie stranded, or as dismantled and rudderless vessels roll in the trough of the waves. It is not difficult to believe in God's love when, like Peter, we stand on the mount of glory and in the rapture of joy proposed to share a tabernacle with Christ forevermore. But it is well nigh impossible when, with the same apostle, we deny our master with oaths and are abashed by a look in which grief masters rebuke. Most necessary is it for our peace and comfort to know and believe that the love of God abides unchanging as himself. What proof did Elijah here receive of the same? Not only was he not forsaken by the Lord, but there was no upbraiding of him, nor word of reproach upon his conduct. Ah, who can fathom, yea, even understand, the amazing grace of our God? The more sin abounds, the more does his grace superabound. Not only did Elijah receive unmistakable proof of the constancy of God's love at this time, but it was manifested in a specially tender manner. He had drunk of the brook Cherith, but never of water drawn by angelic hands from the river of God. He had eaten of bread, foraged for him by ravens, and of meal multiplied by a miracle, but never of cakes manufactured by celestial fingers. And why these special proofs of tenderness? Certainly not because God condoned his servant, but because a special manifestation of love was needed to assure the prophet 
that he was still the object of divine love to soften his spirit and lead him to repentance. How this reminds us of that scene portrayed in John 21 where we behold a breakfast prepared by the risen Savior and a fire of coals to warm the wet seamen. He did this for the very men who, on the night of his betrayal, all forsook him and fled, and who refused to believe in his triumph when the women told them of the empty tomb and of his appearing unto them in a tangible form. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake bacon on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. Not only does this behold emphasize the riches of God's grace in ministering to his wayward servant, but it also calls attention to a marvel of his power. In their petulance and unbelief, Israel of old had asked, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Psalm 78:19. Yea, they affirmed, It had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Exodus 14:12. And here was Elijah, not merely on the fringe of this desolate and barren wilderness, but a day's journey into its interior. Nothing grew there save a few shrubs, and no stream moistened its parched sands. But adverse circumstances and unpropitious conditions present no obstacles to the Almighty. Though means be wanting to us, the lack of them presents no difficulty to the Creator. He can produce water from a flinty rock and turn stones into bread. Therefore, no good thing shall they lack whom the Lord God has engaged to provide for. His mercy and his power are equally pledged on their behalf. Remember then, O doubting one, the God of Elijah still lives, and whether thy lot be cast in a time of war or famine, thy bread and thy water are sure. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake bacon on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. There is yet another direction to which this behold points us, which seems to have escaped the notice of the commentators, namely the kind of service which the angel here performed. What an amazing thing that so dignified a creature should be engaged in such a lowly task, that the fingers of a celestial being should be employed in preparing and baking a cake. It would appear a degrading task for one of those exalted beings which surround the throne of the Most High to minister unto one who belonged to an inferior and fallen race, who was undutiful and out of temper, to leave a spiritual occupation to prepare food for Elijah's body. How abasing! Well may we marvel at such a sight and admire the angel's obedience in complying with his master's order. But more, it should encourage us to heed the precept and condescend to men of low estate, Romans 12:16, to regard no employment beneath us by which we may benefit a fellow creature who is dejected in mind and whose spirit is overwhelmed within him. Despise not the most menial duty when an angel disdained not to cook food for a sinful man. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. Verse 6. Once again it is evident that these narratives of holy writ are drawn by an impartial hand and are painted in the colors of truth and reality. The Holy Spirit has depicted in the conduct of men, even of the most eminent, not as it should have been put, but as it actually was. That is why we find our own path and experiences therein so accurately depicted. Had some religious idealist invented the story, how had he portrayed Elijah's response to the amazing display of the Lord's grace, of the constancy of his love, and of the special tenderness now shown him? Why, obviously, 
he would have pictured the prophet as overwhelmed by such divine favor, thoroughly melted by such loving kindness, and prostrated before him in adoring worship. How different the Spirit's description of fact. There is no intimation that the petulant prophet was moved at heart, no mention of his bowing in worship, not so much as a word that he returned thanks, merely that he ate and drank and laid himself down again. Alas, what is man? What is the best of men looked at apart from Christ? How does the maturest saint act the moment the Holy Spirit suspends his operations and ceases to work in and through him? Not differently from the unregenerate, for the flesh is no better in him than in the former. When he is out of communion with God, when his will has been crossed, he is as peevish as a spoiled child. He is no longer capable of appreciating divine mercies. Because he considers himself hardly dealt with, and instead of expressing gratitude for temporal favors, he accepts them as a matter of course. If the reader feels we are putting an unwarranted construction on this silence of the narrative, that we should not assume Elijah failed to return thanks, we should ask him to read the sequel and ascertain whether or not it shows that the prophet continued in a fretful mood. The omission of Elijah's worship and giving thanks for the refreshment is only too sadly true to life. How this should rebuke us for similar occasions. How this absence of praise should remind us of our ingratitude at divine favors when our wills are crossed, and humble us at the recollection thereof. Chapter 26 The Cave in Mount Horeb Two things are made prominent in the opening verses of 1 Kings 19, the one serving to enhance the other, the bitter fruits of the prophet's panic and the superabounding grace of the Lord unto his erring servant. The threatening message sent by the furious Jezebel had filled Elijah with consternation, and in his subsequent actions we are given to behold the effects which follow when the heart is filled with unbelief and fear. Instead of spreading the queen's message before his master, Elijah took matters into his own hands. Instead of waiting patiently for him, he acted on hasty impulse. First, he deserted his post of duty and fled from Jezreel, whither the hand of the Lord had brought him. Second, occupied solely with self, he went for his life, being no longer actuated by the glory of God nor the good of his people. Third, folly now possessed him, for in rushing to Beersheba, he entered the territory of Jehoshaphat, whose son had married the daughter of Ahab. Not even does common sense regulate those who are out of fellowship with God. Elijah dare not remain at Beersheba, so he goes a day's journey into the wilderness, illustrative of the fact that when unbelief and fear take possession, a spirit of restlessness fills the soul so that it is no longer capable of being still before God. Finally, when his feverish energy had spent itself, the prophet flung himself beneath a juniper tree and prayed for death. He was now in the slough of despond, feeling that life was no longer worth living, and it is on that dark background we behold the glories of divine grace which now shone forth so blessedly. In the hour of his despair and need, the Lord did not forsake his poor servant. No, first he gave his beloved sleep to rest his jaded nerves. Second, he sent an angel to minister unto him. Third, he provided refreshments for his body. This was grace indeed, not only undeserved, but entirely unsought by the Tishbite, 
Wondrous indeed are the ways of him with whom we have to do, who is long-suffering to usward. And what was Elijah's response to these amazing overtures of God's mercy? Was he overwhelmed by the divine favor, melted by such loving kindness? Cannot the reader, yea, the Christian reader, supply the answer from his own sad experience? When you have wandered from the Lord and forsaken the paths of righteousness, and he has borne with your waywardness, and instead of visiting your transgressions with the rod, has continued to shower his temporal blessings upon you, has a sense of his goodness led you to repentance? Or while still in a backslidden state, have you not rather accepted God's benefits as a matter of course, unmoved by the most tender mercies? Such is fallen human nature the world over, in every age. As in water face answereth to face, so the heart of man to man. Proverbs 27:19. And Elijah was no exception, for we are told he did eat and drink and laid him down again. Verse 6. No sign of repentance for the past. No hint of gratitude for present mercies. No exercise of soul about future duty. Ah, uh, in this line of the picture we are shown yet another effect which follows upon the heart's giving way to unbelief and fear, and that is insensibility of soul. When the heart is estranged from God, when self becomes the center and circumference of our interests, a hardness and deadness steals over us so that we are impervious unto the Lord's goodness. Our vision is dimmed so that we no longer appreciate the benefits bestowed upon us. We become indifferent, callous, unresponsive. We descend to the level of the beasts, consuming what is given us with no thought of the Creator's faithfulness. Does not this short sentence sum up the life of the unregenerate? They eat and drink and lie down again, without any regard for God, care for their souls, or concern for eternity. And my reader, this is the case with the backsliding believer. He comes down to the level of the ungodly, for God no longer has the chief place in his heart and thoughts. And what was the Lord's response to such gross ingratitude on the part of his servant? Did he now turn from him in disgust, as deserving no further consideration from him? Well he might, for despising grace is no ordinary sin. Yet while grace does not make light of sin, as the sequel here will make evident, yet if sin were able to thwart grace, it would cease to be grace. As grace can never be attracted by well-desert, so it is never repelled by ill-desert. And God was dealing in grace, sovereign grace, with the prophet. Wherefore we read, And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. 1 Kings 19.7 Truly we must exclaim with the psalmist, He hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. 22.24 And why? Because God is love, and love suffereth long, and is kind, and is not easily provoked, beareth all things. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4-7 through seven. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time. How wondrous is the Lord's patience! God hath spoken once, and that should be sufficient for us, yet it is rarely so. And therefore is it added, Twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Psalm 62.11 The first time the cock crew, Peter paid no attention to it. 
But the second time it crew, he called to mind the word which Jesus said unto him. And when he thought thereon, he wept. Mark 14:72. Alas, how slow we are to respond to the divine advances. And the voice spake unto him again the second time. What God hath cleansed, that call not thou uncommon. Acts 10:15. Rejoice in the Lord alway. Surely the Christian needs not to have such a word repeated. The apostle knew better. Again, I say, rejoice, is added. Philippians 4.4 4. What dull scholars we are. When for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again. Hebrews 5.12 And thus it has to be line upon line, precept upon precept. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time. It seems most probable that it was evening when the angel came to Elijah the first time and bade him arise and eat, for we are told he had gone a day's journey into the wilderness before he sat down under the juniper bush. After he had partaken of the refreshment provided by such august hands, Elijah had lain him down again, and night had spread her temporary veil over the scorched sands. When the angel came and touched him the second time, Day had dawned. Through the intervening hours of darkness, the celestial messenger had kept watch and ward while the weary prophet slept. Ah, the love of God knows no change. It fainteth not, neither is weary. Darkness makes no difference and serves not to conceal its object from it. Unfailing, love watches over the believer during the hours when he is insensible to its presence. Having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end, unto the end of all their wanderings and unworthiness. And said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. May we not perceive here a gentle rebuke for the prophet? The journey is too great for thee. What journey? He had not been directed to take any. It was a journey undertaken of his own accord, a devising of his own self-will. It was a journey away from the post of duty which he ought at that hour to have been occupying. It was as though this heavenly messenger said to the prophet, See what comes of your self-will. It has reduced you to weakness and starvation. Nevertheless, God has taken pity on you and furnished refreshment. He will not break the bruised reed nor quench the smoking flax. The Lord is full of kindness. He foresees the further demands which are going to be made upon your frame. So arise and eat. Elijah had fixed his mind on the distant Horeb, and so God anticipates his needs, even though they were the needs of a truant servant and rebellious child. Oh, what a God is ours! But there is a practical lesson here for each of us, even for those whom grace hath preserved from backsliding. The journey is too great for thee. Not only life's journey as a whole, but each daily segment of it will make demands above and beyond our own unaided powers. The faith required, the courage demanded, the patience needed, the trials to be borne, the enemies to be overcome, are too great for mere flesh and blood. What then? Why begin the day as Elijah began this one? Arise and eat. You do not propose to go forth to a day's work without first supplying your body with food and drink. And is the soul more able to do without nourishment? God does not ask you to provide the spiritual food, but has graciously placed it by your side. All he asks is, Arise and eat. Feed on the heavenly manna, that your strength may be renewed. 
begin the day by partaking of the bread of life, that you may be thoroughly furnished for the many demands that will be made upon your graces. And he arose and did eat and drink. Verse 8. Ah, though his case was such a sad one, yet the root of the matter was in him. He did not scorn the provision supplied him, nor despise the use of means. Though there is yet no sign of gratitude, no returning of thanks to the gracious giver, yet when bidden to eat, Elijah obediently complied. Though he had taken matters into his own hands, he did not now defy the angel to his face. As he had refused to lay violent hands upon himself, asking the Lord to take his life from him, so now he did not deliberately starve himself, but ate the food set before him. The righteous may fall, yet he will not be utterly cast down. The flax may not burn brightly, yet smoke will evidence that it has not quite gone out. Life in the believer may wane to a low ebb, yet sooner or later it will give proof that it is still there. And went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. Verse 8. In his grace the Lord passes over the infirmities of those whose hearts are upright with him and who sincerely love him, though there still be that in them which ever seeks to oppose his love. Very blessed is the particular detail now before us. God not only reviewed the flagging energy of his servant, but he caused the food which he had eaten to supply him with strength for a long time to come. Should the skeptic ask, how could that single meal nourish the prophet for almost six weeks? It would be sufficient answer to bid him explain how our food supplies us with energy for a single day. The greatest philosopher cannot explain the mystery, but the simplest believer knows that it is by the power and blessing of God upon it. No matter how much food we eat, or how choice it be, Unless the divine blessing attend it, it nourishes us not a single whit. The same God who can make a meal energize us for forty minutes can make it do so for forty days when he so pleases. Horeb, the mount of God, was certainly a remarkable place for Elijah to make for, for there is no spot on earth where the presence of God was so signally manifested as there, at least in Old Testament times. It was there that Jehovah had appeared unto Moses at the burning bush, Exodus 3, verses 1 through 4. It was there the law had been given to Israel, Deuteronomy 4:15, under such awe-inspiring phenomena. It was there that Moses had communed with him for forty days and nights. Yet though Israel's prophets and poets were wont to draw their sublimest imagery from the splendors and terrors of that scene, Strange to say, there is no record in scripture of any Israelite visiting that holy mount from the time the law was given until Elijah fled there from Jezbel. Whether it was his actual intention to proceed thither when he left Jezreel, we know not. Why he went there, we cannot be sure. Perhaps, as Matthew Henry suggested, it was to indulge his melancholy, saying with Jeremiah, Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men that I might leave my people and go from them. Chapter 9, verse 2 Strangely enough, there are some who think that the prophet wended his way across the wilderness to Horeb because he had received instructions from the angel to do so. But surely this view is negated by the sequel. The Lord had not twice uttered that searching and rebuking, What doest thou here, Elijah? Had he come thither in obedience to the celestial messenger? That his steps were divinely guided thither we doubt not, 
for there was a striking propriety that he who was peculiarly the legal reformer should meet with Jehovah in the place where the law had been promulgated. Compare Moses and Elijah appearing with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Though Elijah came not to Horeb by the command of God, he was directed there by the secret providence of God. A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. Proverbs 16.9 And how? By a secret impulse from within which destroys not his freedom of action. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21.1 The waters of a river flow freely, yet is their course determined by heaven. And he came thither into a cave and lodged there. Verse 9 At last the prophet was contented with the distance he had put between himself and the one who had sworn to avenge the death of her prophets. There in that remote mountain, concealed in some dark cave amid its precipices, he felt secure. How he now employed himself we are not told. If he tried to engage in prayer, we may be sure he had no liberty and still less delight therein. More probably he sat and mused upon his troubles. If his conscience accused him that he had acted too hastily in fleeing from Jezreel, that he ought not to have yielded to his fears, but rather put his trust in God and proceeded to instruct the nation, yet the sequel indicates he would have stifled such humiliating convictions instead of confessing to God his failure. The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. Proverbs 14.15 In the light of such a scripture, who can doubt that Elijah was now engaged in pitying and vindicating himself, reflecting on the ingratitude of his fellow countrymen, and aggrieved at the harsh treatment of Jezebel? And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Verse 9 God had spoken to him personally on previous occasions. The word of the Lord had ordered him to hide by the brook Cherith, Chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. It had come to him again, bidding him betake himself to Zarephath. Chapter 17, verses 8 and 9. And yet again it had commanded him to show himself unto Ahab. 18, 1. But it seems to the writer that here we have something different from the other instances. As the fugitive lurked in the cave, we are told, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. That expressive term does not occur in any of the previous passages, and its employment here is the Spirit's intimation that something extraordinary is before us. On this occasion it was something more than a divine message which was communicated to the prophet's ear, being nothing less than a visit from a divine person which the prophet now received. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail 
at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.